Welcome back. Uh, this is, you told me it's Sturgis week. Uh, we all brought our motorcycles and uh, I've been revving it up in the background, getting ready to go. Got my Harley shirt on and uh, my MAGA cap. Uh, no social distancing at Sturgis this week is the report. Uh, thank God I got a bunch of good patriots taking freedom into their own hands. It, it sounds like you concocted this great joke and I just have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Don't know what Sturgis is. No, <laughs> well, Sturgis is like the annual bike rally that that happens every year. It's happening this week. So. Oh, that that seems like something I should know, right? Right. Uh, just some name association here. Uh, very happy to be reporting on the latest year of bikes. Um, they probably go faster than last year. Uh, they probably sound heavier. I don't. Let me get you a host who knows a little bit more about the things you want to talk about and, and has broader knowledge outside of just movies, for old movies at that, who can understand your bike rally references and <laughs> Welcome such. Welcome to Horsepower Month on the 20th. <laughs> <laughs> all uh, bikes all the time. We're talking about modern cowboys this week. Um, real, real Americans. The bigger your bike, the more American you are. Actually, we do have some new things to talk about. Not a whole <laughs> lot of new things, I guess. <laughs> yeah, not not a not a whole host of new things you could say, but we do have host and some others. Um, as we're doing the Zoom meeting, why don't we start with the uh, host? Because this is going to be awkward and meta as we look at each other while we describe a horror movie that exclusively takes place in Zoom. Yeah, it, to me, it sounded like like when you you had your review go up of it and. Uh, the the premise and reading it i'm like oh this just sounds like the new Unfriended. version of unfriended <laughs> exactly like that instead of skype it's zoom which right. again it's it's the same platform to people who you know don't care that much and just want to <laughs> see their relatives who live hundreds of miles away I, i'm surprised by the major consensus being entirely against my review that this is one of the great horror movies um everyone's saying it's like the you know the next big movement in horror or something but uh for me it's a little weird to get into like quarantine things in a movie to to hear people talking about wearing masks and shit and i don't know if that that formula is going to last and i don't know if it feels good to watch it's it's kind of like my donald trump complaint from a couple of podcasts yeah. ago where i'm like i don't want to know about the thing that i have to deal with right now in my movies <laughs> right uh, especially a horror movie i think we're living through enough real social horror that I mean, to present it in that context is kind of uncomfortable for me. There's any social horror today that you could see, like like that would actually translate well to the screen? Because again, like the Zoom thing seems like terribly uninspired. Like this is the kind of like Drek idea that we think of <laughs> that, that everyone's like, oh, I can't wait for all the pandemic movies to come out in three years. I I think like the difference with Unfriended is this is really shot over Zoom, right? Like there's there's like no um. I guess there's no artifice there because the director is never even in the same room as any of his uh, people. So it's not like shot in a studio where people are using Zoom and can detach from their computer or something. Like the entire thing is really fixed on a platform. And uh, one funny gag, it, uh, after 40 minutes during the biggest scare, it, it pops up a warning saying their time's running out. So um, I, I enjoyed that. And there's like a, a girl with like an animated tongue she turns on like some kind of filter so every time there's a 
after she gets scared to death and completely traumatized, she's she's crying under a blanket and her tongue's still wagging out with a large animated thing. Can Very funny that, to me. Can I find that tongue here somewhere? All I got is like I don't know. a clap. I've got, I've got a clap I can throw up here on the screen. I got a thumbs up and you got a clap. Um, <laughs> we got the clap at least. Um, I don't know how to but, make it go away now. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Just there for the whole show. Well, you're stuck with it. <laughs> okay. Um, I feel like it's applauding me anyway for my <laughs> for my good take. I I wasn't I wasn't that enthused with it. Um, I think I think you said it read reads a little bit more positively. I don't you, think well, it's a you, bad idea. But you yeah you you like to give films a lot of leeway in in concepts. It's it's probably the same thing that draws you to all these Groundhog Day movies as well. You're like <laughs> I like giving ideas a chance, and I like yeah. seeing the merit in ideas more than. The, the film maybe itself like you, you I, I appreciate that you want to recognize the thought at least um for me like no experiment is really a bad thing experiments are meant to fail so i think it's a huge privilege for a director to be able to fail so uh, just in the sense that i give it a four out of ten i still am not saying like it's not worthwhile and i'm thinking like for a horror person who's really into genre uh, just trying something new can be enough occasionally for me horror is the best place for experimentation anyway yeah i think that comes across well in your review there and i and i agree with that facet that that horror is a good genre to tackle an idea from and there's plenty of fervent horror enthusiasts out there who gets a lot out of terrible terrible movies <laughs> it's like you already have shutter maybe and if you're if you're the kind of person that will like this you already have shutter and so you're watching it basically for free i mean obviously nothing's free but uh I think you're already signed in. You're you're ready for this experience if you're watching these kind of horror movies. So, uh, it's out there. Um, on another streaming service, <laughs> Disney Plus, um, the Beyonce has made a movie um, tangentially related to another movie with uh, large special effects. One that has never been mentioned on this podcast. And yeah. I don't know much about this one because uh, I don't follow Beyonce or okay. this other movie or anything else. Although uh, I am aware of Disney Plus because all I can do now is watch Hamilton over and over again. It's a good one. How did how did this happen? Because I was I was on here. I was saying, oh, I don't want to get caught up in the fervor in in the zeitgeist. <laughs> and then and then I my attention was peaked enough to check it out. And now I can't stop listening to the soundtrack, Calvin. And I can't stop watching the movie. I know I've been playing it while I'm Ubering. I've been I've been having the soundtrack on. I haven't returned to the uh, show itself yet, but uh, I just, that's, I, that's due. I I had been listening to the soundtrack like all day at work, and then I got home. I'm like, I still want to listen to the soundtrack, but I might as well just watch the movie again if that's the case. And I did. <laughs> I guess what's interesting to me is that in quarantine, different things are happening. Like uh, we can't go make movies, but instead we're getting stage shows and we're getting Zoom horror movies and. Uh, Hamilton is the biggest movie of the summer. It's not a movie. Uh, and Black is King is the biggest thing on Disney Plus, but it's not a movie. It's music videos. Uh, it's it's like a Beyonce's Lemonade and Homecoming that came before it. Um, and the Disney movie that shall not be named, sometimes lines seep into it, and it's really awkward because uh, I'm like really like jiving with this music video thing. Uh, some old music, I think. I don't know if much of it is any new stuff, but uh, very good visualization, lots of directors on board, so you, you'd have to believe that with that many directors, each one's doing each music video or something. 
they all feel the same. It should be said as well that it's not like a regular music video. This is like a no. compilation thing. It's like an hour and a half thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kind of come to the place where I think they should release this rather than that that uh, strange thing they did last summer that we'll never name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't seen any enthusiasm anywhere really for really? that other thing. Oh, I mean, oh, ma- maybe I've suppressed thing. it. Yeah. I've probably suppressed it. Th- this I haven't seen enthusiasm for either, but that's just because this isn't the kind of thing that I'm aware of even. Yeah. Like, I didn't it's... even know about this until you mentioned it to me. Its like, average is 4.5 on Letterboxd, which makes it higher than Citizen Kane. Um, that can't be true. It is true. Oh, no, it can't be true. <laughs> so uh, the new Citizen Kane of movies goes to Beyonce um, remaking a movie that nobody liked last year. Finally, that, that's where we've ended up during quarantine. Protesting this. I mean, the rating might have changed. This is when I watched it. This is like day after the, after released. Um, Black is King, though. Uh, I think if you're a Beyonce fan, you've already watched it, right? Uh, and nobody else is really going to encounter that. Is it valuable for people who aren't Beyonce fans? If you care about, like, I, I mean, like, the, the social movement of, like, Black is King and, like, looking at, like, whatever they call it on Twitter, like, the Black Excellence Movement and... Um, just the imagery of that retranslating a Disney classic into like actual uh, pan-African themes, but but also it, it says like the only way to really emerge is through extreme commercialization. So it, it's a very confusing message. But oh, well, what you're saying is, I'm racist if I don't watch it. Yeah, it. You're also <laughs> racist if you do. Catch twenty-two. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and did we have another movie this week? Yeah, I think you mentioned it. Uh, it's 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 something. I, I'm surprised you're forgetting it because you're such a hockey oh cultist. By the way, hockey fanatic. Yeah, didn't we talk about the Kraken a little bit a couple episodes ago? Yeah, I I finally got Ever- to Costco on my third try and gotten a Kraken shirt. It's good times. I'm surprised you're not wearing it for this. It's a sweater and it's about ninety degrees in here. Uh, uh, getting gear for the for the fall season, but uh, playoffs have started. Uh, it's very weird without an audience there. They insert like uh, cheers and noises throughout the games. Um, not not many games that have really registered for me. A few fights already, which is interesting during COVID because I thought they might keep more distance, but. I mean, I think the whole practice of the sport anyway, like if you're participating in a sport, you're basically agreeing not to distance anymore. Yeah. So they all, they all have to live without their families and in bubbles for two months during this. It's it's pretty extreme, like that kind of regulation. But but we saw how it went in the NBA and players went to strip clubs and stuff within a week. So uh, it's, you know, it's not going to hold over that long. Uh, players are, you know, players use drugs. They get out of the system. They, you know, stuff happens. So, so humans are irresponsible is the message I'm getting. Yeah, that's also the message of our new film, Red Penguins. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gabe Polsky, he made one called the, the, what was it, like Red Army or Red Army Hockey or something about the Soviet team, the national team in the 80 Olympics, like the miracle story. Yeah, that. yeah, that, that um, one that, that we know as, you know, the American game. <laughs> yeah, he explores... Polsky, of course, um, explores the uh, Russian side of it and 
his second movie does the same thing, but with this really strange team, the um, Russian Penguins. So, uh, the Russian national or the Russian army team rebrands themselves um, uh, with some help with uh, from Disney along the way. They find a rebranding and they put uh, cartoonish penguins on their jersey. They're looking more at like a, it's around the time of the Mighty Ducks. So they paired with Disney. They made an American production, except they have a. They bring strippers out on the ice. There's a lot of drugs. Uh, it's controlled by mobs. So, uh, same thing as Disney. Um, they they really just want to create hockey as like a social game that people will show up to the games not just for the hockey but to fill arenas for events. Um, it's uh, politically interesting too uh, how um, the sports there are run by the mobs as Russia confronts getting democracy for the first time in the 90s like they make a big push for democracy and then there's widespread chaos in the country and so the hockey is happening like in conjunction with that um it's very interesting it's like a too much too soon thing and uh, it it's fascinating once the players end up getting shot and the head of hockey dies um uh, it's clear that the mob takes more precedent over like a um, business and actual relations and disney even uh says they were never involved now they they keep a distance of course they do that that does sound uh like a crazy story that yeah. certainly sounds interesting enough to be told it's a little slight though it's 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 very small i mean it's exclusive interest i care about it i don't think other people will yeah it's interesting how you keep finding these nuggets these patches of things that appeal directly to you <laughs> I don't know how many hockey films there can be. <laughs> uh, this one I've been looking forward to for a while because I liked his first one, but that's a much better one. So this is a sequel. Uh, I'd recommend Red Army instead. That's a lot cooler. Great. I don't think there's anything else to cover new-wise, right? Nothing new in um, your world? You nothing wanna... too new. Uh, we'll, we'll have something new on the horizon with the video on demand. Um, I don't know if you want to go over that briefly. I don't care. <laughs> you won't care anyway right so uh 17 day window is the new window from that goes from on demand uh cinema right demand. right right that's what this was i, okay. I, I kind of remembered I, I tend to forget everything the second after i hear it so rather than the 70 to 90 day window we'll get movies within a month at home uh it, not every movie but um if there are failures in the box office they'll probably come home early Right, this was the deal that was struck with like Universal after the uh, Trolls fiasco or whatever, and then they said, oh, we're going to release it at the same time, and then, you know, they were rebelled against by the screens killed, I think. And Trolls still our biggest success of this movement, so it's not clear to me if that was a one-time deal, because a lot of movies came and went on demand, and I'm not sure if it's like proven itself as a market. Well, and we if people don't go to the theater if they'll actually buy it at home afterwards still right well i guess we'll see with something like isn't tenant supposed to come on demand or is that only was it select theaters that they said in september um it'll come out in other countries than two weeks right. later labor day we'll get it in select theaters right which probably won't happen yeah you can, you can hear so. again it's gonna no. get delayed again they move it back two weeks every two weeks um, yeah what can you say 
But yeah, I haven't even seen really. Uh, I guess the next test is going to be Bill and Ted, which is getting a VOD yeah. release as well. So that's like next week or uh, the week is after it? that, possibly. Yeah, it's early August, first half of August. Who do we have on that? Bros. Bros. Is, doing he, is he doing it? I want yeah. to make sure we confirm he's doing it. By the way, I, yeah, I'm going to talk to you uh, about this. We need to get him on the podcast again soon. It's been too long. Yeah, yeah, we need another bro episode. They they can't have all the fun on the day June cast. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to have to get a Dane Cook impersonator <laughs> to come on. So that's our threat. And talk about James Bond. Whenever that finally comes out, too, next year. God. Yeah, next year, at least, is going to be film after film. We'll be packed. Um, possibly. We'll see when this goes away. We survive that long, I yeah. guess. <laughs> timestamps for just the show in because it's a lot of rambling to get to the actual stuff that we came here to talk about no no i care about this stuff yeah well i know you care and that's why i put up with it how do i put up with the black and white movies Um, (laughs) i hear they're not very good uh, sounds like you enjoyed this one, though. This one that I finally had you talk about. It was actually, it was, it was only a couple episodes ago that I dropped the name of Sullivan's Travels in reference to, I think it was the Cinema Paradiso one. I said it reminded me of Sullivan's Travels in many ways. And then it happened to come to the Criterion channel at the beginning of this month, and you said we should watch it. Um. Yeah, I, I thought you meant go to Sturgis Bike Rally. So I'm remote on location in indianapolis or wherever sturgis is well some somehow you managed to still watch the film while on location yeah. and Just several coincidence and several others you, you seem to be <laughs> immediately taken to to sturgis after just this one film it's a good coincidence that i watched three of them yesterday so i could still discuss him him in whole i have lots to say this is the first time we're talking about preston sturgis on the show or bring him up anywhere who is the director I, I love and don't get enough to talk about. I brought his book with me this time. Oh, good. Um, I like the cover of that. I like the fonts. Uh, do you do you feel like a do you feel like this movie is about him? About him specifically? No, I no. think that's that's kind of one of the ironic things about it. Well, it it kind of is, uh, but it's mostly about other directors. Uh, Sturges wrote the film after noticing a lot of other directors of his ilk kind of comedic directors started taking themselves a bit too seriously and you know playing outside of their normal zone and so that was kind of the that's the messaging of Sullivan's travels uh in in so many ways uh is that it's about a director comedy director a very successful comedy director who wants to make a serious picture titled oh brother where art thou about poverty and suffering and you know indignation and their name was the Cohen brothers. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Cohen brothers then obviously took from Sturges and, and made that film, which is also a comedy. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and then the whole message of it really, the you know, is that he doesn't have any suffering. It's set up so well. Like, it, in some ways, I just want the first 10 minutes of Sullivan's Travels. Because okay, the, first, the first 10 minutes alone, it's just perfect. It's a masterful opening like the the best of any <laughs> film i think it's ab- absolutely magnetic and un- unrivaled in terms of writing and the direction of it the pacing of the sequence the all of the information that's conveyed in it it's just it's ingenious and i don't know if you noticed but it's in one take yeah yeah 
I think my favorite shot of the whole thing is just when he has his uh, traveler pack and he has it over his arm and you see him like he's wandering out in the wilderness, but then you realize he's still in a Hollywood setting. And <laughs> yeah. Then they have the whole conversation where they're like, but you don't know any darkness in your life and you can't go do this. And, uh, I just love the whole thing where he, uh, he keeps trying to travel out and go to something new. And every time it takes him back to Hollywood or he's already there. Yeah, he gets constantly boomeranged back, you know, and, and no matter how many times he tries to get away, it's like, it's great when he first, there's the scene where he gets away from the the house with the, the weird lady who's like creeping on him in the beginning, and he, yeah. he takes a truck back, and he just kind of like bums his way by thumb, and he ends up, he's like, where am I? He's like, oh, you're in Hollywood, you could going to meet some of the movie people. <laughs> Even when they get back on the train, like the delivery of it is, I guess it's Hollywood, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, it's no matter the, where he goes. Yeah, there's there's something about it. It's like this magical force that's preventing him from like going out and, and into actual suffering. Even when he tries to live that life as like a, um more of a rags, like a downtrodden guy, um his escape when he's jailed immediately is him as a director, you know, and he he, he can reassume that he could leave that life, which is why he doesn't have to why he can never experience it himself. Well, and that's the thing that the film does such a great job of comedically portraying Sullivan's arrogance throughout the entire film. And that, like, just from even, like, the scene where he rolls up to the train yard in a fancy Rolls Royce and steps out to join the, <laughs> the other bums. And and you just can't help but, like, realize how much of an ass he just looks like doing this the, the whole time and how he's, like... It's it's basically, you know, it is like the rich people, you know, just kind of observing and ooing and awing at, you know, the impoverished for their own, you know, enjoyment and ways. There's that great bit about his, uh, from the butler early on where he's preparing and he's, and he's talking about how the poor don't want to be reminded or talked about as they're poor. They don't need to be told that, you know, the yeah, only people know. who would find enjoyment in, you know, observations on the poor are the, the rich they can't even make conversations on the train. They're they're trying to talk about like weather and like arbitrary things while these people are just barely scraping by and they can barely climb in the train. Once they get hungry, they they try to go and like scrape by for a breakfast, but they're immediately given things. Like it shows how imbalanced everything is that someone that were genuinely that poor, I don't think they'd be given the breakfast. Right. And, well, they're just they're so privileged that you know they, they don't realize how they're going around and basically just you know it's it's almost like a vacation they're vacationing through you know poverty through the most part there and uh it's it's, it's very humorous their ineptitude throughout the I entire mean, time just a few minutes into poverty he meets veronica like how lucky can you really be uh, right. i don't know if she has a name in the movie um I can't remember. For I don't think she does actually. Okay. She's just she's just listed as the girl. Okay, <laughs> that makes sense. I, I don't think it ever came up, but uh, she's she's so good. And when when the movie does take off for me, so at least does that after the first ten. Oh yeah, that that scene as well in the diner is I think just as masterful in terms of character introduction and and uh, eviscerating Hollywood <laughs> as an idea. Like she's there talking about how you know all these things you have to do and perform for you know uh you know directors and pressing them at every time you know just for a small part and even like alluding to you know having like uh, sexual favors even in there at one point just like oh yeah. mr Smearcase, that's my thigh <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the Smearcase thing is pretty funny uh, 
just that she's playing him off like like he would be a nobody, but I think she knows something something's up and and she wants a part of it. So certainly, and she's in, so witty and rapid fire and full of confidence, and it's a lot of it is there just in that that writing and and Preston Sturgis's stamp is all over the place in terms of the the clever conceit of it, the the, the wittiness, the, the again, and the, the the pace is just such a unparalleled thing for the first you know 20 30 minutes Sullivan's travels just like zooms like a like a freight train it just and it, again right out the gate it just hits you so fast uh I, I can't tell you how much I love those opening 10 minutes yeah they're, they're so great um I I just think for me that it's it's pretty special that in all three movies I watch that women get to be the funniest characters and then um that uh, women and side characters really take precedent in his comedy, from what I could tell from his major three. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a couple more you have to explore, but I, I was, uh, I was so enamored by the fact that you know this film, uh, just immediately like I didn't even tell you to go on and watch more. You just <laughs> sought them out yourself. You're like this Preston Sturges guy is great. Let me go check out what else he has to offer. You were right. I needed to immediately, and then then there was a lot of pleasure in like. Uh, the Lady Eve realizing that I'd already seen it and how much more I enjoyed it as an adult. Um, that's a special movie we'll get to. Yes, well. and that's the thing I was, I was like, all right, Calvin, but you got to stop because I want to talk about these at some point. Let's just <laughs> I want to get this, to these like, together. Let's just call this fast-forwarding our interests combining here. So we'll get to these sooner. Yeah, certainly. These these films, uh, but you watched both the The Lady Eve, which I got some of your impressions of, and then Palm Beach Story. Right. Which was pretty scattered with my daughter last night, so I, I'm, I have to rewatch that as well. You should definitely. It's a it's another great comedic classic. Joel McRae is in that one as well, and he's he's fantastic. And, he, and he's McRae, great here as, as Sullivan. Really uh, yeah. I know that that Sturges wrote the part specifically for him, never considered casting anyone else, and he's so great as as the director. He gives that that arrogance, but you know, with a with a touch of like relatability, like he doesn't seem entirely out of touch with the world necessarily just very hollywood yeah i'd like to see more joe mccray i mean i know he's in like a lot of westerns and things that i should be paying attention to and uh, this really puts a spotlight on that i i need to look at more of his films and uh, kind of find out more of who he is as an actor yeah he did a lot of uh comedy stuff particularly in this time period as well there's a great um george stevens film that he's in with uh uh What's her name? With Gene Arthur called uh, "The More the Merrier." I watched that recently, and that was very good. But these these two particular comedies, and especially Sullivan's Travels, he's uh, marvelous, marvelous. And would you say, like in this small time period, like uh, maybe Stevens and Sturgis are kind of leading like a pack of American directors? I mean, there's a lot at this time period. This is the same, you know, time when you know uh, John Huston popped up and. Um, Billy Wilder as well, but particularly Sturges is kind of crowned as the first, uh, he, he's always been talked about as the first writer-director, you know, combo of, of Hollywood, which isn't exactly true, because he had people like, you know, Chaplin and Griffith, who, you mm -hmm. know, worked in the silent days and wrote stuff, but he was a screenwriter who worked up, which is which was basically the lowest of the low in Hollywood at the time, and worked up to the highest rank, uh, you know, to be director in this time period just before someone like Billy Wilder did, you know, and so they, I, I think they're a very common pairing. I think about them a lot. And of course I love them both because they really, you know, uh, set ablaze the, the comedy scene in the 1940s and, and thereafter. And very, 
very clear and concise how he's able to combine his uh, writing ability with visual comedy. Um, I think he makes such an easy pairing of those things. I, I just really appreciate his perspective and that it's clear that it's a writer's film first, too. Mm-hmm. Sullivan, at least. But you're right in that physical comedy definitely doesn't get uh, overlooked in his films. You know, he has a great balance of highbrow and lowbrow comedy. Uh, the Lady Eve is probably the better example in terms of the numerous pratfalls that Henry Fonda gets to take. But even out the gate here, I mean, you've got the, the recurring pool gag where everyone gets yeah. thrown in in Sullivan Travels. There's the great, um, how how exciting is that bus chase scene <laughs> in the it beginning? Really when he, it's it feels like a Sturgis can like play with like pre like silent films too, and take like elements that feel like they'd fit one perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with like the Palm Beach story, of course, like uh, when you're like going back in time and uh, in the years where we had silent movies only, the movie is silent and then it goes forward and suddenly we have voice that, that well, kind of happens in Sullivan. And that's a kind of interesting thing that uh, you see with the Palm Beach story and Sullivan's travels that they both start with an ending which I think they is do. kind of interesting. And then they, in, in that way, and he also does this for a couple other films in that it, it sets a erratic tone right off the start because the, the film just opens and bam, it's exciting. People are chasing around or in Sullivan's Travels, there's a big fight scene on a train that starts the film out and it gets your energy pumping right off the bat, you know, as opposed to like, you know, slowly working your way up. So he really does hit you right out the gate with everything. And, you know, it, it, it makes you think as well about, you know, where stories stop and start and, you know, what, what piece we're getting of. I think structurally, he really gets it as a writer. I mean, in all three that I watch, he has very defined arcs and an ability to tell a story in a way that's really fascinating and, and you know, um, begins with kind of a snap and ends with a bang. And that's kind of what you want anyway. Yeah. And again, he's just, he's, it's, it's so funny. The dialogue is always so great. And it's, uh, you know, at the same time, I think he also, he, he manages to balance uh, discussion of classes as well a lot. So, you know, he himself comes from a very high, high class background. You know, his mother was, uh, you know, bouncing him around Europe for all the time. He lived between New York, Chicago and Paris throughout most of his life and always, you know, floated in those circles. But with something like Sullivan's Travels, you also see how he does understand and relate to the lower class despite telling the story from the upper class you know perspective there he does really give the the credence and perspective to the people who have to bum their way along in life you know they're never the butts of the joke it's always you know joel mccrea's out of touch director who's making an ass of himself yeah um there's there was a path for you to get to this movie because your first review of it is, is so <laughs> negative. Um, you really hated this movie. I, I, your score I is higher than the review indicates. But. I didn't hate it. I was very upset when I watched it because uh, Sullivan's Travels takes a dramatic turn about halfway through. The story is, for all intents and purposes, over. Uh, you know, Sullivan has finished his journey into the world of, you know, the uh, impoverished. He feels like he's learned enough to write and, and direct uh, O Brother, Where Out Thou? And then he is knocked unconscious while, you know, a hobo is uh, taking his identity from the marking in his shoe yeah. and is then bleakly run over by a train and smashed into an entirely just. Dis- 
you know, uh, like uh, unidentifiable mush, as they yeah. as they say. And then Sullivan is caught in jail, and he goes to the prison. He goes to a work farm in like Louisiana or something. And he's lost his identity. And uh, well, well, what made you most mad about that? Uh, it felt to me at that time very hypocritical <laughs> because the whole film is is preaching about how you 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 shouldn't make a story about you know or or someone who's a comedy director shouldn't be trying to bring in parts of you know drama about the the poor that's not what they want to see or hear or or you're talking down to or condescending to them in that sense and it's like what the fuck are you doing this is what you just did that's exactly what you're doing here and interesting that it was his least successful at the time like nobody went to this when it was released i do Maybe have actually didn't. i found i found a quote in the book about that specifically oh yeah uh, so if and, and the other thing i'll say as well is that I do sort of have an issue with that still, but it's not that specific dramatic turn. It's the the poverty porn tour <laughs> montage that they take. It's like a seven minute sequence yeah. that's all silent, and it's it's still like it's like a bridge between the the chapters there, and and that it's trying to be dramatic and full of pathos, but it still has comedic moments like where they're like they got fleas and they're itching on each other, and the music becomes like you know super comical and stuff. And and that to me feels more like you're taking jabs at you know the situation and not treating it with all of the the credence and respect that it deserves by by doing it in this truncated form. Yeah, I I agree. Like making it a montage so showcase kind of ruins that point. Um, I I did listen to another podcast after watching it. Uh, one of the one of the hosts yelled for about forty five minutes about how this isn't for poor people. And the other host abruptly says, "We're we're done with their show. We're we're never coming back." <laughs> then they didn't. It's been two years. Never made another episode. That's that's probably for the best because I think they misunderstood. Even even in my ranting and misguided review there, I did uh oh, like uh, last year or whatever. I think I watched this last year for the first time. It just shows you how easily you can change because my opinion's only grown to great appreciation further and further. I've realized your first opinions on movies are usually bad, and then you correct them the second time. So. <laughs> Sometimes. This happened as well with, like, The Third Man, but I watched that when I was, like, 18, and yeah. and the zither music really threw me off at first. <laughs> I went in... Well, the other problem was that I was expecting an Orson Welles movie, like, because everyone talks about Orson Welles in the film, and it's great entrance, and is it show up for, like, an hour? <laughs> sure. And so I, I didn't watch the film properly. But anyway... I do have this quote from Sturgis himself about Sullivan's travels. He said, um, Sullivan's travels started with a discussion about movie making, and during its unwinding tried a little of every form that we discussed, made for some horrible crimes against juxtaposition, a result of which I took a few on the chin. One local reviewer wanted to know uh, the hell the tragic passes, passages were doing in this comedy, and another wanted to know what the comic passages were doing in this drama. They were both right, of course. Some of the New York critics felt they had been let down by the ending. The ending wasn't right, but I didn't know how to solve the problem, which was not only to show what Sullivan had learned, but also to tie up the love story. It would have been very easy to make a big finish either way, but one would have defeated the other. There was probably a way of doing it, but it didn't. I didn't happen to come across it. It might be prof profitable for a young director to look at Sullivan's travels and try to not make the same mistakes I did. So even uh, Sturges wasn't super big on the the <laughs> balance there. Yeah. yeah. 
but I think time is shown otherwise. Of all of Sturges's films, Sullivan's Travels is best remembered and revered. It's recognized as one of the most important comedies of the time and one of the best films uh, ever made. And and I think it really holds up particularly in the ending because the ending kind of brings together the major themes of it. And that, that final line from McCrea about comedy being the only thing people have in some instances, uh, you know, it, I think it makes a case for itself. And I think you need that dramatic balance at the same time to sh to have him come to that realization. The arc doesn't work if you don't have the dark dramatic turn. It just, it could have been a little better done in, in connecting the two ends. Because again, the, the first half is just like the zaniest, kookiest, screwball film you've ever seen. Yeah, And it, and it gets really dark in the second half and, and dramatic and, you know, desperate. For me, it's about this guy saying, should I make those kind of films? And as much as he wants to go into the darkness and try the other thing, no matter what he does, there's still a purpose for laughter. And that's what he ultimately finds at the end. So all these scenes accumulate and they, they still mean something. It well, might not be high art to laugh, but, but we still need it during the Depression. And that key scene in the uh, in the church, in the black church, uh, where they watch the Pluto cartoon is, yeah. a, is a pivotal moment. And it really highlights that because it can be. And, and, and again, I think what Sullivan's Travels goes further to do is it makes a case for the importance of movies as an art form, entertainment in our world. In that even, you know, the, the most desperate and hurting people can enjoy for just even a, a brief moment the reprieve of um you know entertainment except at the place he was being so rich and, and he goes to a poor theater eventually or uh, initially <laughs> and he's so everything's such a hassle like the people with their bags and their noisy food and everything's bad and then then that's kind of like redemption going to that that black church that, that is such a funny scene early on where, where there's great. babies crying and yeah yeah, and you can see Sullivan looking around and being very uncomfortable because he's never watched a movie outside of a screening room in his life. <laughs> <laughs> Not used to any kind of like energized setting, but then, you know, these are the people that are likely experiencing his movies and he doesn't know what it is, you know? Yeah, he, again, it's it's so well demonstrated how incredibly out of touch he is with even the people that he's making movies for. And by by the way, the movies that he made sound fantastic <laughs> they do sound pretty good what is it like a uh, ants on your plants or something? ants in your plants of 1939 <laughs> yeah. which is like a, a riff of like like the gold diggers or broadway melody films that were that were yeah. popular then there's hey hey them. in the hayloft that's good too yeah <laughs> great names yeah i mean uh, i think his movies are usually a little bit smarter than than whatever those imply i i I wonder if it's about him. He made so many comedies so quickly that this is almost like a processing of doing that that exercise. Yeah, it is. It is interesting, particularly in this year, 1941. Uh, around this time, like Sturges became the highest paid, you know, oh, did he? one of the highest paid people in Hollywood. You know, because he made ten movies. <laughs> oh yeah, and this is the thing is that he had such a short career as a director. He came to Hollywood at a late period in his life. He was in like his late 30s when he came to Hollywood and, you know, he was a writer first and he wrote a bunch and he, you know, he was unhappy with how directors would take and mangle his scripts and they wouldn't even be like his works when they came out. And so then he, in order to kind of levy his way in, he wrote this, this great script, this satirical, you know, uh, take on 
you know, on uh, election and, and voter, you know, uh, fraud and, and kind of dipping things there. Uh, and he offered it to Paramount for $1, as the legend yeah. goes, uh, if he was allowed to direct it. And he won an Oscar for that screenplay for The Great McGinty. That's amazing. Yeah. And then the next year, uh, you know, he made another film that year called uh, Christmas in July. And then he made two films in the same year. He made 1941. He made This Sullivan's Travels and Lady Eve earlier that year. Two indelible comedy classics. And then he went on to make, you know, uh, Palm, The Palm Beach Story and then The Miracle of Morgan's Creek right afterwards, which was the highest grossing film for Paramount at that, uh, that year. There was literally only standing room in the theaters when it showed. <laughs> I do want to see some of his early stuff, Christmas in July or something, to figure out where he's coming from initially. I, I'd like mm -hmm. to experience that too. Mm -hmm. It's just a bit, that one's a bit harder to, to get a hold of, though there's decent release of it from Kindle Dorber. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these are like the big comedy ones here. Again, and Sullivan's Travels has transcended even, you know, his own oeuvre to become a, a classic of the period and, and recognized. You know that it's uh, Jerry Seinfeld's favorite movie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was looking at um, the Eve movie, and that's uh, Laura Dern's favorite movie, by the mm -hmm. way. Peter Bogdanovich is also a huge, huge fan of Lady Eve, and it was very informative for his uh, screwball uh, ups and uh, what's up, Doc. Yeah. And and I think there's a bit of that there, you know, sprinkled kind of throughout. I think Henry Fonda in that film definitely is kind of like a combination of, um, you know, or, or not Henry Fonda, Ryan O'Neill's character in What's Up, Doc definitely takes a lot from Henry Fonda there, as well as Cary Grant and Bringing a Baby. I watched a small thing on Bogdanovich talking about this movie specifically right before we went. He he is such an admirer of Sturgis. Mm-hmm. It really informed a lot of his. And, and I would say in Sullivan's Travels as well, I think, informed What's Up, Doc, if you think about because it, it's got that, you know, like kind of scrapbook kind of opening with the, the title sequence there, which is exactly how What's Up, Doc opens as well. And you can see that 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 kind of pouring in throughout his filmography would you say that's kind of like a citizen kane effect to like not exactly literal with the newspapers but kind of like a scrapbooking and uh memorization through like a media it's kind of yeah i think i'm trying to understand what you're meaning more okay uh, i don't have any further to go with that <laughs> uh, that's fine it's a more typical trend that's seen in a lot of classic movies those right. kind of intros well, this is actually the same year as citizen kane coincidentally enough and also wasn't as recognized at the time yeah but and and i would put it on like the same shelf as citizen kane in terms of fantastic filmmaking and movies about something important again i, I can't think of another film that makes a case for the importance of film and entertainment itself as sullivan's travels thinks except for like when we talked about cinema parody so cinema parody so you know, really, again, the, these kind of go together in the terms of how they both talk about the importance of movies and how they affect people and create communities and, you know, uh, really justify all of the, the cost and hard work and production that goes into every project because, you know, the, the feeling you get from experiencing that not only with yourself but with people, you know, is an incalculable value. Just... Um... Just like having these films that are optimistic because we've talked about how many of them are cynical and and this does have an ending that's like a, it's okay to laugh and it's okay to have people laugh um, during the depression coming out of that you want to 
you want to have these movies that are more uh, celebratory anyway, and that amplify the value of just going to movies, just the, the premise of that. And it is fascinating that two of the best movies of that year are from the same guy. Yeah, I mean, truly incredible. You don't see anything like, again, having such a fast turnaround like that on genuine bona fide classics, uh, you know, and it's sad that he didn't, that he, that he tapered off kind of at the end of the 40s there. His career kind of started to dip and then he was just not able to make any more. Yeah, um, it, it's so short. I was only disappointed to see that there was 12 because yeah. uh, it's going to be a quick watch through. 12, 12 movies kind of very similar to orson wells though though wells's career was spread out over a longer yeah. period of time they seem less troubled though like he seems like he didn't have any hesitation no he was or... he was the <laughs> top efficient. director he was the top director at paramount while he was there and he turned yeah. out you know great films and they were all like major you know successes while he was there i think he's a lot more practical because he's able to get these things made to his vision very quickly um without any interference seemingly yeah, for, for the most part. But he was also just incredible at what he did as well in, in his direction and rehearsal. And he really understood how to work with his actors. Again, like, you know, that, that I think about that long take in the beginning, which basically they, they did on the first day of production. And he did it as like a dare from one of the crew members. They were like, I bet you can't do it in one take. It's like, oh, yeah, watch this. And it's a really good one take, too. It is, again, because it communicates so much and it's so efficiently paced. Uh, and it saved them like four days of production just because they shot it like in the morning after like two or three attempts. And they're like, that's it. That's that's the shot. That's the whole sequence, four days worth of shooting. So you feel like you've improved on it a lot, obviously. I feel oh, like you've come oh, around yeah. and you really enjoy this movie now. You don't hate it. No, I, I don't hate it. I didn't hate it the first time either. I was just, I was, I was frustrated because I was like, it was, it was a perfect comedy like I had never seen before for the first 20 minutes. And then it took a you know unexpected turn but now that i know that turn is coming and i understand the purpose for it it makes a lot more sense and as a juxtaposition even though sturgis thought as well that it didn't work as well i i see how it works a bit more even if the the changeover itself is a little rusty and to me also the message of the film just transcends and becomes this important integral work beyond even just the the excellence in its execution and anything there's there's films of his that i find funnier overall or that i enjoy more or connect with but the message of sullivan's travels makes it such an important piece of uh art i think and I, I can't think of any other film that quite you know justifies its you know purpose in the world quite like sullivan's travels um every time i hear the name john sullivan by the way i think of the old boxing guy you you always see like the image of the guy in like the long john pants and his arms up with the big mustache. Oh, oh yeah, that, that guy. That's, uh, that's John Sullivan, famous boxer from like the 1800s. Uh, uh, huge golden glove guy. I'm a huge boxing fan, so that always makes me think like a big wig who, you know, uh, has a has a fall eventually. Uh, but but everyone that was big in America back then were like named like John Sullivan, like, oh, like the master of a craft and a proficient boxer, like a pugilist. And um, I, I always find that interesting. Um, comes back to my interest a little bit. Well, I'm interested as well to hear, because like, like I said, you were certainly taken by Sturges, but I, I wanted to hear a bit more of what your your highlights of this film were. There's so many you could pick from or, or what really resonated with you. I think it's just like the playful sexiness of all his movies. That um, There's like a boiling chemistry every time that he pairs actors together. And he obviously writes for the actor themselves. So I feel like he gets so much out of Veronica Lake 
Um, and and she plays off uh, Sullivan so well that uh, I I wish she had a character name, honestly. But <laughs> okay, she plays off Sullivan so well that I, I it's so effective for me. The writing is brilliant. Um, I. Oh, brother, where though I still like more. I think it's one of Cohen's finest movies. Uh, uh, you, you just have a very great personal affection in, in history with it. You know, I, I don't just think it's the funniest it. movie in the world. So, yeah. Oh, right. hey, you know, who knows? It might take you three times to love Sullivan's travels as much as I do. I mean, it, it took be. it took a while. You, you can see from that review, and I'm not going to get rid of that review, even though it's frankly embarrassing because it is. It's just it's like the most eviscerating, mean spirited, like accusatory review. I'm like. Who the fuck does this Sturgis guy think going in? I'm I'm basically the asshole in the New York Times review that he's complaining about <laughs> in his autobiography. Yeah, I mean I could see that reaction, and I heard it on that pod, a really embarrassing podcast. We're not going to give their name because it's so bad, but yeah. uh, um, I I could see it. I I feel some of the complaints about like it's it's messaging, and I could see why also someone would yell about it not being for four people for an hour. It's definitely not. One, one thing I wanted to say as well that uh, in my reading is that originally Sturges, uh, you know, how they, they show a Pluto cartoon in the right. church. By the way, that, I guess that's another thing. He actually he received a letter of, uh, you know, um, king, uh, recognition from the, the NAACP at the time for his uh, wonderful, you know, portrait of, of black people on the screen in, oh, cool. in, that, in that scene, which is super cool. Yeah, it's a great scene. Um, that that song they they sing and yes, it, it's really moving actually. And Moses was in Egypt's land. Yes, it's um, good stuff. Uh, but originally he wanted to have instead of a Pluto cartoon there, he, it was going to be a uh, a Charlie uh, Chaplin film, a Tramp, you know, okay. uh, picture, which I think would have been so great. Like that's one of the other things that I'm like where where it gets me preferred because i'm like i see the the brilliant idea here because wouldn't that just been the perfect like encapsulation of all of the ideas of it here the idea that not only you're seeing the the poverty of the tramp being portrayed on screen but he's he's exuding the comic brilliance that the champlain always did and it's giving joy and life to these same people you know being reflected back at them effectively and in the, the Pluto bit, you know, you you get the comedy sense of it, but it just it wouldn't have been as great a a, a stamp and a mark there that that a Charlie Chaplin film would. And he just wasn't able to get the rights for it because Chaplin didn't want to do it. Yeah, a lot of tramp in this movie though, so it would come full circle there. Maybe be too on the nose. I'm not sure. Maybe I mean I I can imagine it playing super well, but yeah, the Pluto it, thing's still good. Um, oh yeah, and it's it doesn't great. mean as much, but it's still good. I don't know what Pluto means exactly in the movie. <laughs> it's just, yeah, that's, it's that's funny. Like a, it's it's base. It's... I think that's why seeing Charlie up on screen would have had this this great impact, and I would I would love to see. Uh, the the Pluto cartoon works perfectly well, though. It's just again, it's another example of like why something like that might bother me a lot because it's like it's just shy of perfection. I think it's so ways. close uh, in a lot of ways. It's it's so close. Um, and it, it only gets better the more you watch it, I have to say. And the more you watch Sturges, the more you hone in on his style and such. And I think that's the other thing. Like This was the second Sturges film I had seen at the time. Me too, I guess. Apparently. <laughs> I think I'm the same, but like you had to come back around and you seem to really love Lady Eve. I, I think that's my 
clear favorite so far. I think it's a great favorite. I, again, uh, e- even though I'll say I think Sullivan's Travels is the most important and integral film he made. I think. I think. It, uh, I think Stanwyck's legs are pretty important too. Though. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh yeah. Uh, and and I love uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek as well. For I want to see that one. As yeah. Well. I'm gonna you, hold off for a podcast. You you definitely should. It's great. Um, and and he's got a lot of the same. Th- you know, great things about it, uh, you know, bringing all together all of his recurring players and, you know, interesting themes. It's also very sex related. Like I was, I was kind of taken aback by some of the stuff that they talk about in that one. I'm like, how the fuck did you get these past the censors? <laughs> There's a lot of that in, in even these three that I saw, just like a, a lot of good play around the censors. It, it feels good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad you got to check out Sullivan's Travels. It was an exciting one. I hope everyone else who can see it on the criterion channel also check it out because it is a a comedy classic and it's a blast i mean i i it's one of those movies where you feel fixated on the scene you don't want to look at anything else or think about anything else i i think i must start at like 6 30 in the morning and just watch straight through and and it's 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 breezy it's a breezy hour and a half and they do and they get across so much in it it's such a fun time that it's it's one that you're just going to be immediately attached to yeah I'm I'm super glad we did this. I wanted to to tell you as well. I know you uh, uh, spent some time shitting on this other podcast that hated on the film in many ways, but there is another show, uh, one I listened to a while back that I wanted to kind of highlight because they did such a wonderful job talking about Preston Surges for such a long time, and you might enjoy it. It was like a two and a half hour discussion of Preston Surges' entire okay. career. It's um, let me pull it up here. It's the the Wrong Real podcast which is hosted by uh, James Hancock. It's their 494th episode. They did it like earlier this year. And a lot of the same stuff we said here, you know, they covered even more in earnest. Uh, so I, I would definitely recommend that if you're interested in hearing more about Preston Surges. Um, I think mine was a million dollar movies, if anyone wants to look into like this more <laughs> uh, contentious one. Uh, with screenwriter Bob Schneider, uh, comedian Dan Wilber on that one. We don't really give a lot of shout outs to other podcasts here because we don't even have enough advertising space for our own backers. No free ads, as they say. <laughs> but I, I enjoyed that discussion so much. And I'm just like, I felt like, how much can I add to what they already said about Sullivan's travels and so much more about Preston Sturges? Um, yeah, I, I wish I knew that's what we were doing. I, I came prepared with a, a lot of bike equipment. I was going to show off my new motor and I brought a whole book, and uh, I didn't. I only pulled out the one quote from it. But I, I recommend, if you're interested again in, in Sturgis, check out more from him. He's a very short career directing, so it's very easy to get to most of them, the highlights anyway. I like my Preston like I like my motorcycles. One down, five up. You know what I mean? No, that, that was the whole point. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> Why don't you want to make old brother where art thou, Sully? Well, in the first place, I'm too happy to make old brother where art thou. In the second place, I haven't suffered enough to make old brother where art thou. You haven't suffered enough. He hasn't suffered enough? No. But, Sully... I'll tell you something else. There's a lot to be said for making people laugh. Did you know that's all some people have? It isn't much, but it's better than nothing in this cockeyed caravan.